You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Most advisors are fully across the tax rate that applies to superannuation death benefit payments paid to a non-dependent, such as an adult child. However, what can sometimes catch advisors out is where the payment of a death benefit results in other unexpected tax liabilities, such as a Division 293 tax liability, depending on how the death benefit is paid. I'm your host, Craig Day, and here with me to discuss this month's question of the month is Linda Bruce. Okay, now, Linda, the payment and taxation of death benefits is a pretty common question we get in the First Tech team. However, one recent question we got involved the payment of a death benefit and Division 293 tax, which is not what you would normally think that an advisor would, you know, that they would put those two things together. Can you please tell us of the scenario that the advisor was asking us about? Sure, Craig. We got a uh, call from the advisor concerning a client, Gabrielle. Let's call Mm -hmm. her Gabby. Gabby... Mm -hmm. Not her real name. Not her real name. (laughs) Gabby is 45 years old. Uh, Gabby took a few years off work to look after her family, her young children. Uh, Gabby recently returned to work on a part-time basis. Uh, actually, she returned last in the last financial year. Her annual salary is $45,000 and the super guarantee is paid on top of that. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have any other accessible income. Uh, and Gabby's top priority uh, was to build up her retirement savings. So based on that, an advisor recommended Gabby to salary sacrifice $20,000 to super. Uh, her taxable income after salary sacrificing to super uh, became $25,000, which means uh, Gabby is only liable to pay very minimal income tax and a Medicare levy. And the advisor also recommended the government co-contribution co- strategy. Okay, so well, that all sounds pretty normal, but I'm suspecting something then happened, yeah? Yeah, something happened. So Gabby's father passed away uh, not long ago. So following the death benefit nomination, the trustee of the super fund paid uh, the deceased father's super death benefit payment directly to Gabby. That happened in July 2023. So the payment was made in the current financial year. Right, so not so, that long ago either. Not long ago, just mm. last month, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the taxable tax element of this super death benefit payment uh, was $300,000. In this particular event, there's no on tax element. Uh, just as a side note, we know that for tax fund, usually we do, we're not dealing with on tax element, except for uh, lump sum death benefit payment, and that it can contain on tax element if one the death benefit payment contains 
lifetime insurance payout. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the deceased member uh, was under age 65 at the time of death. That's one situation. And the only situation a tax fund uh, make a lump sum payment that could contain untaxed element. But we don't have to worry about that uh, for this particular case. Gabby's father was over age 65, so there was no untaxed element uh, in this scenario. Okay, and so 300,000 sounds like the, the total sum of the death benefit. There wasn't any untaxed or anything like that? Uh, there is some tax-free component, but we can ignore that uh, for, okay. for the purposes of this com- uh, discussion. Okay, so obviously things get tricky when a super death benefit's involved. Now, in this situation, the death benefit is paid was paid by the fund directly to Gabby. So Gabby needs to pay the death benefits tax. Am I right? That's absolutely correct, Craig. Uh, In this situation where Gabby received the payment directly from the super fund, Gabby is the taxpayer. So the taxable component of the super death benefit payment forms part of Gabby's accessible income and Gabby is liable to pay tax. Now, the advisor uh, was fully aware of this and Mm -hmm. the advisor also was fully aware that the taxable tax element of the super death benefit payment is taxed at Gabby's marginal tax rate but capped at 15% plus Medicare levy. So all good. Mm-hmm. Now, the advice question uh, that uh, was mainly about how the 300,000 tax element uh, from this super death benefit payment interacts uh, with the remaining 25,000 uh, taxable salary that Gabby is still receiving. That's mm-hmm. the um, uh, after Gabby's salary sacrifices $20,000 to super. Uh, in other words, uh, the advisor was really asking about whether the 25,000 taxable salary is a tax the first. So essentially here, what, what the advisor was asking about is just which income is considered to be the first slice of income. Is, is it the $25,000 that's the first slice of income and then the $300,000 sits on top of that? Or is it the other way around? The first slice of income is that big fat $300,000 lump sum payment and then the income sits on top of that. So that's actually a really, really good question. Now, there's a specific order to tax income subject to different rates. So I'm, I think I'm right there, am I? Yeah, good. 100%, Craig. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is our understanding of the tax practice. Our understanding is that the ordinary income um, subject to uh, normal marginal tax rate uh, will be taxed first. Now, we might have different lump sum income uh, subject to uh, maximum tax rates. Now, those type of lump sum income, our understanding is uh, those income will be added on top of the ordinary uh, income and it will be taxed at the marginal tax rate, but capped at the applicable um, maximum tax rate. So in this particular case, uh, the 25,000 taxable salary that's subject to the normal marginal tax rate, so this income will be taxed first. Uh, That's the first slice. That's the first slice or first layer, yes. Uh, So the 18,200 tax-free threshold can be applied to this income, uh, and then the remaining salary is taxed at 19%. Uh, So because the marginal tax rate at this particular point in time is already higher than the 15%. So the tax element, uh, the 300,000 tax element of the super death benefit payment, 
government is then taxed on top of the ordinary income, but at a flat rate of 15%. Then the Medicare levy is applied uh, to the whole entire taxable income. Okay. And the way they do that is they, they apply tax offset, don't they? Just to reduce the tax back down to the relevant rate. So in this case, 15% tax and then the 2% Medicare on top of that. Yep. Okay. So that's obviously to ensure that the taxpayer is getting the better tax outcome. Um, now, however, things can get more complicated if the client receives lump sums that are subject to different maximum tax rates. So for example, the maximum tax rate for an untaxed element contained in the super death benefit is 30%, which we talked about before, which is different to the taxed element. Now, we got more detail in our first extra strategic update article, Tax on Super Death Benefits Paid to a State Versus Beneficiary. And that article explains more about the specific order to tax lump sums. So rather than go into it here and, and probably confuse everyone, please check out that article if you want to know more. Now, Linda, back to the scenario. It sounds like a straightforward question. So w- what are the concerns? Yeah, uh, we answered the question the advisor asked, and we also discussed that because of the higher amount of accessible income Gabby has, uh, Gabby will no longer be able to receive the government local contribution mm-hmm. for this particular financial year, and the advisor was fully aware of it. It was all good. Yeah. Uh, and then, just as, as we always do, Craig, as a strategy consideration, um, we mentioned to the advisor, uh, hang on for a second, uh, due to the receipt of the super death benefit payment, it's no longer tax effective for Gabby to salary sacrifice to super in this financial year. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned that this is because the 20000 salary sacrifice amount is taxed at 15%, um, but Gabby will receive a Division 293 tax notice from the ATO after the end of the current financial year. That means the total tax payable on the 20000 salary sacrifice amount uh, would be taxed at 30%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, yeah. yeah, in comparison, if Gabby stops salary sacrificing to super, this 20000 would have been taxed at a maximum 19% plus Medicare levy, which is lower than 30%. Okay, so obviously the advisor didn't expect this at all. No, not at all. But that's kind of um, understandable because um, when we talk about Division 293 tax, we generally think about that's a tax payable uh, uh, based on the concessional contributions and that's a payable by high income earners. Yeah. Yeah, right. Gabby's clearly not a high income earner. What is she, no. on 45 or something? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So we don't typically include someone like a Gabby in the high income earner category. So totally understand where the advisor came from. Yeah. Uh, however, we do need to understand how Division 293 tax works. Um, then we needed to understand uh, what actually forms part of the Division 293 income. Okay, so clearly very important to understand what income counts towards Div 293 mm. or that 250 threshold, but it, it's not just clearly, it's just not employment income, is it? It, it includes other things. Uh, I wish uh, it's just the employment income we are dealing with that would yeah. make things 
so much better, right? So much yeah. simpler. Wouldn't better. So much simpler. Uh, but no, it's not. Uh, so at a very high level, Division 293 income uh, includes the client's adjusted taxable income for Medicare levy surcharge purposes, um, plus the concessional contributions uh, that the client made during the financial year that are within the concessional contribution cap. Mm -hmm. So we really needed to look at a client's taxable income, uh, which is calculated as the assessable income minus the tax deductions. We then needed to look, add back a few things, uh, such as reportable fringe benefits and investment losses to get the level of adjusted taxable income for these purposes first. Okay. Now, what about taxable lump sum? So as we went through before, they're included in taxable income as well, aren't they? So even though that flat tax rate applies by applying that offset that we that we discussed. That, that's correct, um, Craig. The, the taxable income uh, can include the regular ordinary income, but it can also include any taxable lump sums, uh, such as net capital gains, uh, employment termination payments, uh, and the taxable component of the super desk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, there is one type of um, the, the lump sum payment that's excluded from the calculation. And this might be the very last year we'll have to deal with it. So mm. that's the uh, any super lump sum withdrawals made by client between preservation age and age 60. That's still within the low rate cap, currently $235,000. So this amount uh, are not accounted for these purposes. So why do we only have to worry about it for one more year? Because next year, the preservation age will increase to age 60. Yeah, so we yeah. just don't have that um, gap <laughs> anymore. Okay, terrific. Okay, so we get adjusted taxable income and then what? Yeah, so once we get the adjusted taxable income for these particular purposes, uh, we then needed to add the concessional contributions uh, that are within the client's concessional contribution cap uh, in the calcul calculation. So where the adjusted taxable income and the concessional contributions within the cap uh, are more than $250,000. So that's the Division 293 tax threshold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. the ATO will then apply 15% Division 293 tax to the to the total amount, uh, to the concessional contributions amount that it takes overall overall uh, Division 293 income above the 250000 threshold. Now, so in that case, you know, the way I always think about that, or we'll use this example, is it's to say I've got my adjusted taxable income is two forty, but then I've got twenty thousand dollars worth of concessional contributions, and they're all fully within my cap. Um, so the first ten takes me up to the two fifty threshold. So the amount over and above being the second ten thousand dollars, it's the div, div two nine three tax only applies to that second ten thousand dollars. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now. Obviously, we've, we've talked a lot here about um, concessional contributions being within the concessional contribution cap. So obviously, this means that any excess concessional contributions are disregarded? No. Quite so simple, Craig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excess yeah. concessional contributions are included in the client's taxable income uh, and yes. taxed at a client's marginal tax rate. Mm. Uh, so actually, they form the first layer of the calculation. They are part of the adjusted taxable income for these purposes, and they can affect the division to net three tax payable on the concessional contributions right. within so, the cap. Yeah, so it increases the amount of non 
excess of concessional contributions that might exceed the threshold. That's right, yes. Yeah, okay. Now, that all makes sense. So let's come back to Gabby um, and start to apply it, if we may. Yeah, let's just keep it at a very high level uh, because we don't want to get bogged down in the um, uh, numbers on this particular podcast. I oh, know a podcast, lot of people. Really? It's yeah. a bit hard to follow this on the bus or I had someone tell me that they used to listen to our podcast mowing their lawn. So that advisors out there, you know, thank you for that. That was, at, I think, at the SMSF Summit, the SMSF Association Summit. It came up, no, it was actually North Queensland, came up and told me that uh, how much he enjoyed the podcast as he mowed his lawn. So therefore, yeah, you know, so however you listen to them, fantastic. We can't get all the numbers down mm. and no, you know, no. bother all the listeners, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, assuming that Gabby uh, has no other tax deductions, so we get a taxable income, that's 25000 of the taxable salary. So that's the amount of the salary sacrifice uh, to super amount. Mm-hmm. And we have a 300000 from the death benefit. So let's do an easy, uh, very easy primary school math. Uh, mm-hmm. Gabby's taxable income is $325,000. Uh, so we all know at this stage, Gabby's income, adjusted taxable income alone, already exceeded uh, the Division mm-hmm. 23 uh, threshold of $250,000. And we just know that all of the concessional contributions within the concessional contribution cap would be subject to Division 293 okay. tax. Now, that's not just her salary sacrifice, is it? No. How about no. the super guarantee contributions? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. yeah. So, so what was the two? It's 20000 So mm-hmm. with that level of income, she's going to have, was a 4950 in SG. So her full amount of 24950 of concessional contributions is going to be subject to Division 293 tax. So what's the tax on that? Yeah, so that's 15% on the $24,950. Uh, we got a Division 293 tax amount of $3,743. Okay, so this is one of these creeping little, you know, death benefit taxes. It's not actually a death benefits tax, but because we've taken it as a lump sum in the in, in the payment directly to, to Gabby, we end up having to pay extra Division 293 tax. So as a consequence of receiving this, this death benefit. Now, um, now coming back to this, thinking about, mm. so as I said before, it's just not the salary sacrifice contributions. Uh, it's the SG contributions that are going to be caught as well. Mm. Now, when did you say she received it? So it was in July, wasn't it? Yeah, the current okay. financial year. Yep. So we're still in the early months of this financial year. So she, or if, you know, if you were the advisor, you would say, hey, Gabby, stop salary sacrificing because otherwise that 20000 is going to be taxed at 30% instead of 19%. So that's something that we want to do. But what if we were late in the financial year? Mm. Um, and, you know, we've already salary sacrificed you know, stopping it when we're in June or, you know, May is not going to make that much of a difference. No. So I'm thinking, so a client like Gabby, maybe we could use the carry forward concessional contributions. She's not a high incomer. She's clearly not previously been salary sacrificing up to the cap. So she's going to have a large amount of unused concessional contribution cap. So what if she makes a personal deductible contribution using the, the death benefit proceeds to reduce a taxable income to below 250 could that help help reduce or eliminate the division 293 tax funny that craig the advisor asked the exact the same question 
Um, the short answer is no, mm-hmm. um, because as we discussed earlier, the division 293 income is based on the adjusted taxable income and the concessional contributions within the cap. So while the personal deductible contribution can reduce Gabby's taxable income, it needs to be added back to determine the division 293 income. In other words, a personal deductible contribution simply cannot reduce the overall division 293 income. Yeah. Okay. So just to, to get that in my head, so we might go and claim a tax deduction that reduces my taxable income by whatever amount, right? And then, but because I'm putting that money back into super as a personal deductible contribution, it reduces my ATI, but then it increases straight back up because now I'm counting it not as taxable income, but as, uh, concessional. as concessional contributions. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we end up with the same result. Now, maybe if we go through an example, so Let's say for argument's sake, let's say Gabby makes a $100,000 personal deductible contribution, obviously using the death benefit proceeds, uh, and that this is within her carried for concessional contribution cap. Mm. So what happens then? Yeah, sure thing. Let's have a look at, um, uh, to start with, uh, Gabby has taxable income of $325,000 we mentioned earlier. That's just like Gabby makes a personal contribution of $100,000 and successfully claim this amount in the tax return uh, as a deduction for personal contribution, super contributions. Now his taxable income is successfully reduced to $225,000. Yeah, it's lower than the Division 293 tax threshold at this stage. Okay, so then, however... However, there's always a... But, uh, <laughs> however, <laughs> yeah, however, a division of three income uh, will need to consider the amount of concessional contributions as well. So we yeah. need to add it all back. That is the super guarantee, uh, salary sacrifice contributions, as well as this 100,000 personal deductible contribution. Once we add everything back in, we get exactly the same amount. The total overall division 293 income went back to 349,950. Yep. Yes. But now we've got a lot more concessional contributions. That's right. So uh, on top of the salary sacrifice, super guarantee, uh, part of the personal deductible contribution uh, will also be subject to the division 293 income. All right, so how much extra tax are they going to have to pay because of all this? Yeah, if we take uh, everything into consideration, um, putting 100000 in super and claim it as a tax deduction uh, will cost Gabby in total um, extra $8,978. Okay, wow. Well, so, sorry, seriously, uh, a lot more tax to pay there. Now, of course, the result can also be different if the super death benefit contains untaxed element. We, we kind of talked about this before. Now, the untaxed element is subject to a maximum tax rate of 30%. Now, whether the personal deductible or salary sacrifice strategy is effective or not, in that case, I suppose, depends on the client's taxable income subject to their marginal tax rate. Now, the only way to know that for sure is to do the comparison and Div 293 tax needs to be considered there as well. Now, this can also apply, you know, to any lump sum income that is subject to the maximum tax rate. So it's not only death benefits, but also potentially employment termination payments as well. That's right. Yep. Now, we mentioned, Linda, that the tax outcome would be different if Gabby's father directed the super death benefit to the LPR, i.e. the estate, and the LPR 
paid the death benefit to Gabby through the estate and not directly from the super fund. Is that right? That that's absolutely correct, um, Craig. Uh, in this scenario, where the father directed the death benefit to the state and Gabby received the payment through the state, uh, we're dealing with different taxpayer. So, who pays the death benefit tax? Uh, it's no longer Gabby in this scenario. The LPR of the deceased state is the taxpayer who is mm-hmm. liable to pay the tax uh, when the death benefit uh, is paid to a non-tax dependent, in this case, Gabby. Uh, so when Gabby receives the distribution from the state, Gabby receives after-tax distribution, and Gabby is not required to report any of this income in her own individual tax return. So uh-huh. Gabby's assessable mm-hmm. income, a taxable income, will still um, be $25,000, assuming that she still salary sacrifices $20,000 to super. So that means um, her individual tax will remain very minimal, uh, and there's no Division 293 tax, and she could still receive the government local contribution, uh, and if she's also received a family tax benefit payment, etc., uh, there's no impact on that uh, either. And also, it's just the way the tax law works that um, in this scenario, no beneficiary can be presently entitled to this income. And therefore, the LPR, the executive or the administrator of the state, uh, is not liable to pay Medicare levy either. So there's a bit of a 2% Medicare levy saving there yeah, as well. Yeah. So I think lots of advisors are familiar with that, that issue that if it goes through the estate, they don't have to pay the 2% Medicare. But it's all these other things as well. Well, potentially uh, availability to get the co-contribution and potentially avoiding Division 293 tax, all of that comes out of the fact that the death benefit went to the LPR to form part of the money that's part of the estate and dealt with under the terms of the will, um, and then it goes out. And so Gabby, Gabby doesn't have all these knock-on tax implications of uh, of being paid the death benefit directly because the the estate is the one that pays the tax here. Now, however, if a client's deceased estate is going to be messy, it's probably not a good idea to, you know, direct money through the estate to save, you know, maybe ten dollars or $15,000 worth of tax if it's then and up for grabs. That's right, Craig. It all comes down to the client's priorities. Uh, even their state is super, super clean, super simple, no potential challenges whatsoever. Yet getting that additional tax benefit might be Maybe. desirable, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But in comparison, if the state is really murky and messy, no one knows eventually who get what. Maybe provide some certainty for Gabby is the priority of the Gabby's father. It really all comes down to the priority of the clients. No yeah, right or wrong. Yeah, obviously a a really important consideration there. You know, obviously saying saving a couple of thousand dollars through uh, through paying it through the estate could end up actually backfiring if we have these black sheep kids come out of nowhere and and a lot of the super now gets gets paid off to uh, under a family provision claim somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. something to consider. Now, obviously, uh, to find out more, we we do have a first tech article as well as a podcast on paying death benefits directly via the estate, and we'll include this in the description of the podcast. Now, I think that pretty much sums it up. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Craig. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 
While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.